We spent part of our summer in the southern Sierra amongst the giant sequoias. And several times when we were there, we came across interpretive signs that talked about their ability to withstand forest fires. The sign said that other trees burn, but that sequoias are unique as their uh, bark is fire resistant and they only need 5% of their needles remaining in order to survive. This is especially true for the monarchs, the really big, really old trees, and it has been sufficient for centuries. That is until recently. You may have come across an article this week about the effects of the castle fire that raged in mid-September. The fire was on the edge of the uh, Golden Trout Wilderness and the giant Sequoia National Monument, and it was so intense that over 80 monarchs, sequoias that have lasted 500 to 1,000 years, they perished. This is highly, highly unusual. In fact, according to research that they've done with the tree rings, you have to go back to the medieval warming period, back to 1297, to find fires that burned at this intensity. But it does not need to be this way. For millennia, due to lightning strikes and thanks to frequent low-intensity fires that were managed by indigenous people, the forests were cleared with regularity so that when fire did sweep through, there weren't the large fuel loads that have fed the cataclysmic fires that we've seen rage in forests across the West in this time of climate chaos-induced drought. The health of the forest, and particularly of the giant sequoias, is known in the space that's created when the shrubs and the smaller trees are cleared away. It's in that creative absence that renewal and restoration can begin to take hold. I had this story on my heart this past week as I came across our vision from the prophet Isaiah. This vision of God's presence as fire kindled in brushwood. And I was reminded of the proverbial inferno that swept through Israel in the 6th century before the Common Era. The Babylonian Empire conquered the nation, destroyed their temple, and exiled the people. And so Isaiah is among the prophets who are reflecting on the crushing cataclysm of this great exile. And in this passage, from what is sometimes referred to as third Isaiah, the prophet is attempting to make meaning out of experience. 
because the people of Israel faced a painful question. Where was God when they needed God most? Why could we not find God in the chaos and the confusion? The people know that they have strayed from the ways that lead to life, that they've ignored the periodic need to take stock and to reform. They know that they've lived in iniquity for long enough that it feels as if they will never be again clean or whole. They trust that God has acted in the past in real and powerful ways, but they wonder if in their time of great trial and tribulation, if they've been abandoned. God, if you were so powerful and awesome, why aren't you here now? This is a totally faithful question. A question that we see asked throughout the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom literature. And it's a question that finds voice in this passage. When the prophet says, but you were angry and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. Because you hid yourself. Now, spoiler alert, in the next chapter, chapter 65, we hear God's response. And it may not be surprising to know that God feels that they were there all along. It's just that the people were looking in all the wrong places. But this cry of lament that when we need you most, God, we cannot find you. This is essentially a cry of faith. And it is a cry of faith that rings as truly in the 21st century as it did in the 6th century BCE. Friends, it is righteous to be sad and to wonder, to yearn for God to just do something to fix this. And the years of reflection seem to have distilled a truth for the prophet and for many who wrestle with divine agency. And that truth is that God is the only one who controls God. We can't make God show up like a puppet on a string, try as we might. And we do. And another truth is that not being found is a form of divine judgment that can serve a divine mercy. A no or a not yet that clears the ground for a more profound yes. If we are able and willing to work and to wait, and to trust that what we are experiencing now 
will not last forever. I have a friend who at an early age could admit no wrong. This behavior really flowered at around age four. Even when caught red-handed, she would hold her ground with a fierceness and an eloquence that belied her age. Rooted in her own version of reality and unwilling to hear anything to the contrary, her parents found the only way forward was in that moment in time to send her to her room. But here's the crazy thing. After just a little bit of time away in her room, she would come out, apologize, and move right on. Sometimes it was like moments, like less than a minute, after she had been constitutionally unable to admit where she had gone wrong. You see, sometimes in life we need that space to be able to consider a time out to reset ourselves. And sometimes if the tension and the dislocation grows intense enough, and if we aren't able to see it ourselves, sometimes it takes an outside party, hopefully someone we love, to clear that space. Like the low-level fire that makes room for flourishing, There is a need in our souls, in our beings, in our bodies, in our collective consciousness for space to be cleared. The challenge is that we often believe that silence and absence are simply rejection. And yet what the prophet sees this morning is that negative space has value that God's absence can be preparing us for God's presence, stripping away in us what we cling to that keeps us from relationship. And the longing that the people of Israel felt as they began to emerge from exile is one that we can easily recognize for ourselves. Life in this pandemic and in the reckoning in this country can feel dislocating. The familiar has been stripped away and it can be exhausting to remain awake and present in the midst of all the hard things. I find that it can be so easy to distract, to to clutter, to obscure. But often, it's in the absence that we are awakened to our most essential longings. And so that is why I, I cannot tell you, friends, how grateful I am for Advent for the simplicity, for the spare form, for the space of this season. 
And I realize that this longing paradoxically comes at a time of year when our cultural cues that surround us tell us to stuff ourselves, to stuff our bodies and our minds and our spirits. Until often we feel cluttered and overfull. And that stuff does not satiate. But the clarion call for us, especially right now, in this time of resorting and reckoning, is the call of the prophets and of the Christ to ready ourselves for the Spirit of God to clear the space within. What needs to be removed for you so that new life can emerge? Now is the time to reset our schedules so that the fire of the Advent wreath can burn in our homes and in our hearts each and every night. Now is the time to make room for conversation with God to create space in our daily lives for silence, for stillness. Now is the time to give to those who are struggling so that all are fed, braced for the storm, and warm for the night. Now is the time to stay awake to what in you feels disconnected or ill at ease. So in the midst of that, you can hear the still, small voice of God leading you. Now is the time of anticipation, of expectation. So take heart, make room, be present. For the dawn is breaking, and now is the time to clear the space for the one who is to come.